That was weak. Let's try it again. Good morning, Main Street. See, it's easy for you to see me, but f- uh, for me to see you, I gotta face these lights up here. And so, right now, y'all look beautiful because I can't see anything. That, <laughs> um, and I don't look so good because I'm under the lights. <laughs> Join me in your Bibles in Genesis chapter one this morning. We're going to look over the next four weeks at some very basic. Uh, foundational truths in the Word of God. Back in the 1970s, for some of you, that's ancient history. For some of us, it was our grown-up time, right, Connie? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a rock group that sang a song called Taking Care of Business. How many of you know that song? All right, see? I see I'm not too out of touch here. Taking Care of Business was the name of the song, and that's the name of our series for the next four weeks is Taking Care of Business, and we're going to talk about taking care of God's business, because He has a business, and He has employed you by the fact that you're living and breathing. Stand with me for just a moment. We're going to read a verse of Scripture, have a word of prayer together, and then we'll get started. Stand as we read Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, you probably don't even need to look at it. You know it that well. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Read it with me. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Let's pray. Father, bless our time in your word. And I just pray, God, that you would uh, speak to us, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive what you have for us in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the Bible is not a science book, but where it speaks on science, it speaks correctly. And uh, when we talk about the beginning or the origins of our cosmos, this world that we live in, uh, we, we have questions of how did it get here and why is it here? And in my lifetime, I have, uh, I've heard all kinds of theories, and so have you, and I've read all kinds of theories. And basically, every theory that I've ever come across will fall into one of four categories. And those categories are, or the four possibilities for the existence of our universe. Number one, it's always been here. Uh, the universality of matter, which without going into scientific uh, discussion, uh, that's just unscientific. It, it does not fall in line with the laws of thermodynamics, and it could not have always been here. And very few people anymore. There were people at time that believed that, but I don't know of anyone who follows that theory anymore. The second idea on how it got here is that it came into existence by chance, from nothing. That also doesn't uh, line up with the laws of thermodynamics and uh, nothing can't produce everything. In fact, nothing can't produce anything. Uh, nothing in this world that you know came from nothing uh, by itself accidentally by chance. So the first two theories really fall outside of uh, what we would call good science. The third idea uh, I don't know how you would test it so much scientifically, but it is this. It's not really here. Now, we usually chuckle at that one. Yeah, it's not really here. There's a brick wall. Run into it and tell me if it's here or not. 
But the funny thing about this is that's really kind of a fundamental belief of most Eastern religions, that it's just not really here. And once you figure that out, you cease to exist, which is, you know, uh, nirvana. It's perfection. It's heaven. You, you don't keep coming back reborn and reborn and reborn as something else. It's not really here. Well, the first two are clearly unscientific. The third one is not sane. And the only other option we have is that it is supernaturally created. That something or someone outside of nature made it. And that one really points us to Genesis 1-1. It's the only one that doesn't violate the laws of science. And it's the only one that makes good sense of what's here and why it's here. The only sane and rational possibility does not violate, and that does not violate scientific facts is this fourth possibility that it was created supernaturally. And that is exactly what we see when we open the pages of the Bible and we read it beginning in Genesis 1-1 all the way through the book of Revelation. Let me just uh, take a trip with you through the scriptures and see that everywhere we turn in the Bible, it points us to this fundamental fact that God is the maker and the creator, the originator and the owner of all things. Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 says, for in six days, The Lord, Jehovah God, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. Nehemiah tells us in chapter 9 verse 6, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. In And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worships you. John chapter 1, John's gospel begins with these words. In the beginning, God, uh, or excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians, He says to them in uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For by him all things are created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Paul says here, whether you can see it or you can't see it, if it exists, God made it. In Revelation chapter 4, in that great worship service that God shows us in heaven around the throne, he says these words, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are. And were created. So how did it get here? Well, the Bible says God made it. Why is it here? It's here for His pleasure. He decides what's going to be here and what's not. God has, because He is the creator of all things, God has the absolute right of ownership over all things. He owns this building you're seated in. He owns the chair that you're sitting on. He owns the clothes that you're wearing. He owns the car that you came here in. He owns the air that we breathe, and He owns us. There is absolutely nothing 
that God is not the creator of and the owner of. The earth, uh, David wrote in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Psalm 24 verse 1. Uh, nothing else in the Bible will ever make sense to you. Nothing else in the world will have any true relevance if we miss the fact that God is the author, the creator, the maker of all things and has full rights of ownership to everything and every body. You see, if you get this fundamental truth wrong, everything else falls out of line. We mess it up. It's kind of like when you get dressed in the morning and you put your shirt or your blouse on. If you've got a button up, uh, if you mess up that first button, anybody here ever done that? You get the button in the wrong buttonhole? Okay, yeah. I do that. I'm so glad you do that, Mike. It makes me feel better because you're a smart guy. I'll have it all the way down and realize, oh, I'm off. And I've got to undo every one of the buttons and start over again. We see, if, if you get this truth wrong, you're not going to get anything else right. It is so basic. Greg Laurie wrote a book called A Time to Worship. I, I read that book, and he had a story in there I want to share with you. I found it to be a very interesting, compelling story. He says, I read a story of a woman who had finished her shopping and returned to her car to find four men inside her vehicle. She dropped her shopping bags, drew a large handgun from her purse, and with a forceful voice she said, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of my car. She was shaking, but the the men listened and they did not wait for a second invitation. They got out and they ran like crazy. The woman, understandably shaken, quickly loaded her shopping bags into her car. She just wanted to get out of there as fast as she possibly could. But no matter how she tried, she could not get her key into the ignition. Then it hit her. This isn't my car. She looked and indeed her car was parked four or five spaces down to the right. She got out of the car, looked around to see if the men were near, loaded the bags into her own car and drove to the police station to join, or excuse me, to turn herself in. The desk sergeant, after hearing her story, nearly fell out of his seat laughing. He pointed to the other end of the counter where four men were reporting a carjacking by a woman with glasses and curly white hair less than five feet tall, who was carrying a large handgun. No charges were filed. She thought it was her car, but it really belonged to someone else. When you and I live our lives and act as if, I know we don't believe it, but when we live and act as if we are the owners of what actually belongs to God. We're like that crazy mistaken woman who forced the rightful owner out of his own vehicle at gunpoint. The bottom line with this is 
you're going to want to let God be God. Let the owner tell you how to run the show, how to run the business. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. He owns everything and everybody. In Genesis 1, 1, he created time, space, and matter. It all started in an instant. In the beginning. That's time. Before that, there was no time. Time is a created thing. And God placed a man and a woman in a garden eastward in Eden on that planet called earth that he made and gave them a job to do. Listen, when Adam showed up, everything was already in place. He did not own a blade of grass. He did not own a tree in the garden. He did not own a thing. He didn't even own himself. He showed up and God, the owner, said, I want to put you in charge. You're going to be the manager. We call this stewardship. And we're going to be looking at, for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to be the manager or the steward of God's business. We're going to look at the managing all kinds of things. The Bible uh or, or, or in life, the Bible says God is the, the owner of all things. We can't talk about all things. I've only got four weeks. But we're going to look at four different areas that God owns and you and I are managers of. We're going to talk about truth, talent, treasure, and time. Time is what we're going to look at today. Time is, uh, we're going to talk about taking care of the time God gives us. Time is not eternal. It had a beginning. And it will have an end. Time is a created thing. God exists not before time, but outside of time. He's not bounded by time like you and I are. Our life is measured, always has been, always will be, till the day we die, by seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, seasons, Years, decades, and then beyond our life, millennia. We measure time. Our life is measured this this way. We're told in Psalm 90, and if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn there with me at this time. We are told to number our days. And then in a moment, we're going to be in another portion that tells us to redeem the time we've been given. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now I want you to see the context of that phrase. Most of us have heard that phrase uh, and that verse many times. We're to number our days. But the context in which that is mentioned, and it was written by Moses, and he says in verse 1 of Psalm 90, Lord Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He gives us the context here of an eternal God, a God who knows no beginning and no ending. You cannot grasp that with your finite mind. 
I've tried. Maybe you've tried too. Your brain will hurt when you try to figure that out. I've been trying to figure that out since the time I was a child. And folks, listen, you know why you'll never figure that out? There's no one like him. Paul Dedion, you had a start in life. There was a time when you did not exist. I had a start in life, John. There was a time when I didn't exist. February 13th, 1961, I came into this world by birth. I existed for nine months before that in my mama's belly. Before that, there was no Brett Haas. Now, God knew. God is eternal. God knows the future from the past. But I did not exist. I was not here. There was no material body that made up this person you see standing here. There was no soul inhabiting this body. I am not eternal and neither are you. God is. And that's the context that that, uh, Moses gives us here in talking about God. He says in verse 4, and this is interesting, because a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. A thousand years ago, 1023 A.D., I learned this this morning, I didn't know it, uh, that was the time of the Crusades. You probably haven't thought much about that this week, have you? A thousand years ago, there were things going on that we don't much think about right now. I have a hard time remembering what I did yesterday. Moses says here, a thousand years to God is like yesterday. He said, or it's like a watch in the night. I got a phone call at 1223 the other night. Please don't do that. (laughs) Now, if it's an emergency, please do that. But this was not an emergency. And it wasn't anybody that's in here. But I got a phone call at 1223, woke me up, and I couldn't go to sleep for the next two and a half, three hours. That's a watch in the night, a portion of the night, four hours in the, you know, from midnight to to three, three hours, or from three to six. That's a watch in the night. Moses says, to God, that's what a thousand years is like. That three hours, it felt like a thousand years to me, too, not being able to fall back to sleep. But... uh, He's trying to give us a perspective here that that time means nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. He says in verse number 12, so teach us. Well, actually, verse 10, let's look at that real quickly. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, seventy years. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, eighty years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. He said, you might live 70 or you might stretch it to 80 years. He wasn't giving us parameters here for saying, that's the length of life. That's as long as you're going to live. Moses lived 120. All right, so he wasn't giving us some parameters here, but he's just saying, listen, you don't have forever. Your days are not limitless. There is an end to your time. So verse 12 says, teach us, Lord. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. When Moses considered the frail nature of this life and the righteous judgment of God, he asked God for the wisdom to understand the brevity of life. He says, teach us to number our days. You know, we number all kinds of things. We A, a rancher will number the head of cattle. He knows how many cows he's got in his field. A store owner will number his merchandise. He knows how many widgets and how many this and that he has. So he'll know when to reorder. 
A collector numbers the number uh, of items in their collective uh, store. We count our money. We, we number our money to determine how much we have and how much we're worth. But we think our days are limitless. We don't stop to consider that and we don't number them. This is a wisdom that must be learned. He said, teach us to number our days. Most people live with very little awareness that life is short. Now, we all know that. In the back of our minds, we know that. But we don't live with that in mind. We're, most people live with the very little awareness that life is short and that their days should be numbered. Young people especially often think their days have no number and give little thought to what lies beyond this life. The longer you live, the more you consider it. Because you look back at some of the days that you squandered and you wasted and you said, oh, if I could just have that back, I would do differently. Using time wisely, learning to number your days is realizing that your days belong to God, that you don't have a limitless supply, and that you need to use those days wisely. Using those days wisely is what the Apostle Paul calls in Colossians 4 verse 5, redeeming the time. He says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. That word redeeming is the same word that Paul used twice in his letter to the Galatians in reference to Jesus Christ redeeming us with his blood from the curse of the law. Christ paid a price to redeem us and to deliver us from destruction. And let me just say right here, if you uh, have never trusted Christ as your Savior, know this. He loves you more than you love yourself. He laid down his life for you. He paid the price to redeem you from all iniquity, paid the price for your salvation. It cost him his life. And Paul uses that word redeem or redeeming here in Colossians 4 to say that we're to redeem time. Christ paid a price to redeem us. It cost him and it will cost us to redeem time. Redemption is a price that is paid. Paul writes about redeeming the time in the context of our relationship with unbelievers and how that we should be walking in wisdom, he says, toward them. In other words, there's coming a time when you are not going to have that opportunity when we get into the presence of Christ, when we leave time and enter eternity, there will be no unbelievers there. You see, the way into heaven, the way to eternal life is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only ones who will be there in his kingdom are those who have been born again into the family of God by believing the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And when that happens, I'll be thrilled and you'll be happy, but unbelievers will not be there. They will be there with us in time 
not in eternity. So Paul says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Paul is telling us here that we should be wise and invest time in the lives of unbelievers. Much and probably most of your time in life will be spent among those who are not followers of Jesus Christ and who will not, unfortunately, be with us in eternity. Now is the time to invest. Now is the time to redeem that time. And Paul says in the very next verse, it's not on your screen there, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. So in other words, how do you, how do you deal with unbelievers? How do you share the gospel with those who don't know Christ? He said, let your words be gracious. Let your speech be always with grace. Unbelievers don't need somebody beating them over the head with a Bible. Now, I did not say they don't need the Bible. They do need the Bible. They need the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But your speech is to be gracious. He said, gracious, seasoned with salt. Salt's that which stings a little bit. Sometimes the truth hurts. In fact, the gospel starts off with Christ died for our sins. You cannot share the gospel without presenting the fact that people are sinners and that they are separated from God. But he says, your speech should be with grace, seasoned with salt, not drenched. When I was in Bible college, I wanted to make some chili because I like chili, which reminds me on the 29th of October, we're going to have a chili cook-off in the fellowship hall. If you're a mean chili cooker, I want you to put your chili in. One, because I want you to win the prize, and two, I want to taste your chili. All right. Um, but I, uh, and also, and let me say this now so I don't forget later. Um, we need candy for the trunk or treat that night. So if you can bring in bags of candy, that'd be great. And if you'd like to, to set up your vehicle across the street in the way to, to do a trunk or treat for the kids, uh, see Mary Miller and let her know, hey, count me in. I want to be a part of that. But anyway, I wanted to make chili for uh, myself and for my roommates. And so I called my mom on the phone and, and I said, Mom, I need Dad's chili recipe because my dad made great chili. And she said, well, you know, he never makes it the same way twice. I said, I know that, but I said, at least give me the basics. Tell me how to make his chili. And so she did, and she, she goes through, and she gives me my dad's chili recipe over the phone. And I'm writing it down. And the first thing she said is, cover the bottom of your pot with salt. I did. I covered it. To me, the word cover means you can't see the bottom. That's not what my mom meant. (laughs) That's what I heard. That's why communication is very important. And I put all the rest of the ingredients in and I cooked that chili and it smelled delicious. I couldn't wait. And then when I put the first bite in my mouth, I nearly puked it out. It was awful. Way too much salt. I cried when I poured that pot of chili out. I mean... There's probably ways to fix that, but I didn't know what to do with it. And so 
I just lost all that good chili. And I was a poor college student. I didn't have any money to replace it. So I really did. I really cried when I poured that chili out. See, what was the problem? Too much salt. Sometimes our witness to the world has too much salt. I'm not telling you you don't share the truth. I'm not telling you you don't present truth to unsaved people. But, folks, let your speech be always with grace. Seasoned with salt. You know when you season your chili or whatever you're eating with salt, you just season it. You don't pour it in like I did. You know what it does? John, it makes it taste good. It's like, wow, I want another bowl of that. That was good stuff. And you know what? Our witness for Christ, if it's seasoned with salt, will create a a hunger in people. They'll say, I want to hear more of that. I want to know what you know. I want to know this gospel you're talking about. Speech, gracious, seasoned with salt. Your life is the time God gives you. Remember, it's God's time, not ours. So how does God want His time to be used? Well, I I know that He wants some of that time used to share the gospel. I don't want to beat anybody over the head, but I want to ask you, just in your own heart, did you do that this week? Did you take some time to share the gospel of Jesus with someone? We spend most of our time working and sleeping, literally. Average eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep. Two-thirds of your day is gone. Paid work, housework, leisure, eating, sleeping, commuting back and forth to work, all together takes about 80 to 90% of your time. you got 24 hours in a day. You just have about 10 to 20% of it left after you've done the things you have to do. And you can use that time any way you choose. It's been given to you by God. Remembering whose time it is, tis, let me encourage us to utilize it in the best possible ways to give glory to God. Let me also encourage you to specifically give Him a portion of your time. Now, all the time belongs to God. So when I'm on the job, when you're on the job and I'm working and you're working... We might be working for Walmart or we might be working for a construction company or we might be working for a dentist office or we might be working for a school uh, or we might be working for Main Street Baptist Church. But all of that time is His. So I'm supposed to do the best job I can do on my job because I'm not working for my boss. Uh, I may be working under Him, but I'm working for God. Just like Adam was placed in that garden and God gave him a job, God has given you and I a job to work for Him. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, Jesus says these words, Seek ye first, there's a time word, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Give Him the first part of your day. Now the whole day belongs to Him, right? It's all His. But set aside the first part. Spend your morning, whenever that is. You may get up at 3 in the morning. You may sleep till 8. I don't know what your getting up time is. It varies for different people because of our schedules. But start your day first with God. 
Give him the first bit of your day. I'm not going to tell you whether that needs to be five minutes or an hour or whatever it is. But give him that first part. Get in God's Word. Pray and, and, and hear from Him and speak to Him. Give Him the first day of your week. You're doing that right now. The first day of the week is Sunday. It has been set aside for centuries by Christian people to come together to worship the Lord. And the Bible tells us not to forsake that assembly, but to come together. So set aside Sunday mornings and say, look... Whatever else happens, I'm going to be in church. Now, you may end up with some things that keep you from being here on a given Sunday. You may even have a job or get a job where you're precluded from being here on Sunday morning. But all else aside, set aside Sunday morning to be here. Now, this isn't the only place where God is. He's everywhere. But this is the place where we come together to worship Him collectively, collaboratively in community with one another. And your week is better off when you start it that way. Gentlemen, we have a first Friday fellowship, the first Friday morning of every month. You say, when is it? Well, check your calendar and find the first Friday. That's when it is. And that first Friday at 6.30, we're right across over here at these tables with breakfast tacos and coffee and a Bible and fellowship and prayer. It's a great way to start the month. Give God some specific time. I want to close with an illustration that will help us, I think, to understand. I wanted to actually do the illustration here on stage, but I realized the time consumption it would take, and so I chose not to. And I also know how clumsy I can be, and I thought, I'll mess this thing up. So I'm going to tell you a story that I saw a a fellow do, and you've probably seen or heard something like this before. But it always resonates with me because it helps me to remember how important my time management is. This man stood on a platform uh, speaking about time management. He had a table in front of him with an empty glass jar about yay big. And he began to put into that empty glass jar rocks. Good-sized rocks, about, about like that. Probably got eight or ten, I don't know, maybe twelve rocks inside that jar. And as he was putting them in, he was talking about how important it was to get the most out of your life and get the most out of your calendar and the most out of your time. And he kept putting rocks in. And he got them all the way to the top and he asked the question, Now... I have filled this jar with these rocks. I can put nothing else in. Is that true? And everybody said, yep, you you filled it. He then pulled out a jar of gravel, small rocks, and began to pour in smaller rocks in and around the big rocks until he had shaken it together and filled it up to where now the gravel was filling the jar. And then he asked the question again, Have I now filled the jar? And some said, well, most said, yes, you filled it. He reached in behind the counter and grabbed a bottle of sand and began to pour sand into the jar and shook it until he filled the jar now with sand. And he said, now I have filled the jar, right? Well, they all were quizzical at this point and said, I'm not going to say anything. He then reached back and pulled out a pitcher of water 
and began to pour water into the jar and filled it to the top. He said, now I have absolutely filled the jar. There's nothing more I can put in without overflowing in. What is the lesson to be learned here? People raised their hand and most of them agreed. The point of the illustration is you can always do more than you think you can. There's always time to get one more thing done. Use your brain, think outside the box, and you can accomplish more. And he answered, no, that is not the point. The point of the lesson is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in. We fill our lives with water and sand and gravel. And leave out the big rocks. Faith. Hope. Charity. Love. The really important things in life. Time with your wife. Time with your children. Time in prayer. Time in God's Word. Sharing the gospel with those that are lost. The really important things that ultimately will matter. When it's all said and done. If you don't put the big rocks in first. In other words, you don't prioritize them. They'll get left out. Jesus said, seek ye first the big rocks. The kingdom of God. Make sure that you're not crowding out the things that matter for the things that ultimately will not matter. Only one life, it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after, there's another time word, after this, the judgment. Time on earth began for you at a point in the past, and it will end for you at a point in the future. And we don't know when that point is. The only time I have is right now. Be great. Don't presume upon it. Appreciate it. Number the days. Redeem the time. And invest it wisely. One of these days when time is ended, you will want to hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You put the big rocks in first. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, our praise team will come and we will close our service with some music and a time of invitation. Your life belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. My life doesn't belong to me. They belong to God. And He lets us have this life. We're his business. And he's put it into our control to manage or to run or to take care of his business. Let me ask you, how's business? Are there things that you're leaving out? Are there big rocks that need to go in? Do you need to empty the jar of some things so that you can fit in what really matters?
The thing that matters most is your relationship to Jesus Christ. And that relationship on his end is already fixed. He came, he went to the cross, he died, he rose from the dead to enter into a relationship with you, to have you with him. Have you responded to the gospel? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? It's a simple thing of admitting that you need him. Admitting that you are a sinner and that Christ died for your sins. Believing that he died and rose again and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. Have you done that? If you know that you are in him, you're a follower of Christ. Not saying you're perfect, but you know that you belong to Jesus today. Would you simply just hold your hand up as a praise and a thanks to God? Thank you, Lord. Say it in your heart. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. If you couldn't by faith say that and know that, I want to invite you today to come to Jesus. He has given you this life. And he wants to give you eternal life with him forever. If you'd like to know him as your Savior, I'll be right here down at the front the close of this service you come and we're going to all come here shortly or some of us to pray but you stick around and come see me and say hey I'd like to know how I can receive Christ as my Savior Father bless this time that we sing and praise you bless this time of invitation as we respond to your word in Jesus name Amen Let's stand.